Chapter Forty Nine of Uncle Silas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Silas by J. Sheridan Le Fenu. Chapter Forty Nine, An Apparition. But after all, he suddenly resumed, as if a new thought had struck him, is it quite such folly after all? It really strikes me, my dear Maud, that the subject may be worth a second thought. No, no, you won't refuse to hear me, he said, observing me on the point of protesting. I am, of course, assuming that you are fancy-free. I am assuming, too, that you don't care two pence about Dudley, and even that you fancy you dislike him. You know in that pleasant play, poor Sheridan, delightful fellow, all our fine spirits are dead. He makes Mrs. Malaprop say there is nothing like beginning with a little aversion. Now, though in matrimony, of course, that is only a joke, yet in love, believe me, it is no such thing. His own marriage with Miss Ogle, I know, was a case in point. She expressed a positive horror of him at their first acquaintance, and yet I believe she would, a few months later, have died rather than not have married him. I was again about to speak, but with a smile he beckoned me into silence. There are two or three points you must bear in mind. One of the happiest privileges of your fortune is that you may, without imprudence, marry simply for love. There are few men in England who could offer you an estate comparable with that you already possess, or in fact appreciably increase the splendor of your fortune. If, therefore, he were, in all other respects, eligible, I can't see that his poverty would be an objection to weigh for one moment. He is quite a rough diamond. He has been, like many young men of the highest rank, too much given up to athletic sport, to that society which constitutes the aristocracy of the ring and the turf, and all that kind of thing. You see, I am putting all the worst points first, but I have known so many young men in my day, after a madcap career of a few years among prize-fighters, wrestlers, and jockeys, learning their slang and affecting their manners, take up and cultivate the graces and the decencies. There was poor dear Newgate, many degrees lower in that kind of frolic who, when he grew tired of it, became one of the most elegant and accomplished men in the house of peers. Poor Newgate. He's gone, too. I could reckon up fifty of my early friends who all began like Dudley, and all turned out more or less like Newgate. At this moment came a knock at the door, and Dudley put in his head most inopportunely for the vision of his future graces and accomplishments. "'My good fellow,' said his father, with a sharp sort of playfulness, "'I happen to be talking about my son, and should rather not be overheard. You will, therefore, choose another time for your visit.' Dudley hesitated gruffly at the door, but another look from his father dismissed him. "'And now, my dear, you are to remember that Dudley has fine qualities, the most affectionate son in his rough way that ever father was blessed with, most admirable qualities, indomitable courage, and a high sense of honor, and, lastly, that he has the written blood, the purest blood I maintain it, in England.' My uncle, as he said this, drew himself up a little, unconsciously, 
his thin hand laid lightly over his heart with a little patting motion, and his countenance looked so strangely dignified and melancholy, that in admiring contemplation of it, I lost some sentences which followed next. Therefore, dear, naturally anxious that my boy should not be dismissed from home, as he must be, should you persevere in rejecting his suit, I beg that you will reserve your decision to this day fortnight, when I will with much pleasure hear what you may have to say on the subject. But till then, observe me not a word. That evening he and Dudley were closeted for a long time. I suspect that he lectured him on the psychology of ladies, for a bouquet was laid beside my plate every morning at breakfast, which it must have been troublesome to get. For the conservatory at Bartram was a desert. In a few days more, an anonymous green parrot arrived, in a gilt cage, with a little note in a clerk's hand addressed to, quote, Miss Rithin of Knoll, Bartram Hoff, etc. It contained only directions for carrying green parrot, at the close of which, underlined, the words appeared, quote, The bird's name is Maud. The bouquets I invariably left on the tablecloth where I found them. The bird I insisted on Milly's keeping as her property. During the intervening fortnight, Dudley never appeared, as he used sometimes to do before, at luncheon, nor looked in at the window as we were at breakfast. He contented himself with one day placing himself in my way in the hall, in his shooting accoutrements, and, with a clumsy, shuffling kind of respect, and hat in hand, he said, "'I think, miss, I must have spoke uncivil t'other day. I was so awful put about,' and didn't know no more nor a child what I was saying, and I wanted to tell ye I'm sorry for it, and beg your pardon. Very humble I do. I did not know what to say. Therefore I said nothing, but made a grave inclination and passed on. Two or three times Milly and I saw him at a little distance in our walks. He never attempted to join us. Once only he passed so near that some recognition was inevitable, and he stopped and in silence, lifted his hat with an awkward respect. But although he did not approach us, he was ostentatious with a kind of telegraphic civility in the distance. He opened gates, he whistled his dogs to heel, he drove away cattle, and then himself withdrew. I really think he watched us occasionally to render these services, for in this distant way we encountered him decidedly oftener than we used to do before his flattering proposal of marriage. You may be sure that we discussed, Milly and I, that occurrence pretty consistently in all sorts of moods. Limited as had been her experience of human society, she very clearly saw now how far below its presentable level was her hopeful brother. The fortnight sped swiftly, as time always does when something we dislike and shrink from awaits us at its close. I never saw Uncle Silas during that period. It may seem odd to those who merely read the report of our last interview, in which his manner had been more playful and his talk more trifling than in any other, that from it I had carried away a profounder sense of fear and insecurity than from any other. It was with a foreboding of evil and an awful dejection that, on a very dark day, in Milly's room, I awaited the summons which I was sure would reach me from my punctual guardian. As I looked from the window upon the slanting rain and leaden sky, and thought of the hated interview that awaited me, 
I pressed my hand to my troubled heart and murmured, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, then I would flee away and be at rest. Just then the prattle of the parrot struck my ear. I looked round on the wire cage and remembered the words. The bird's name is Maud. Poor bird, I said. I dare say, Milly, it longs to get out. If it were a native of this country, would not you like to open the window and then the door of that cruel cage and let the poor thing fly away? Master wants Miss Maud, said Wyatt's disagreeable tones at the half-open door. I followed in silence, with the pressure of the near alarm at my heart like a person going to an operation. When I entered the room, my heart beat so fast that I could hardly speak. The tall form of Uncle Silas rose before me, and I made a faltering reverence. He darted from under his brows a wild, fierce glance at old Wyatt, and pointed to the door imperiously with a skeleton finger. The door shut, and we were alone. "'A chair,' he said, pointing to a seat. "'Thank you, Uncle. I prefer standing,' I faltered. He also stood, his white head bowed forward, the phosphoric glare of his strange eyes shone upon me from under his brows, his fingernails just rested on the table. "'You saw the luggage corded and addressed, as it stands ready for removal in the hall?' he asked. "'I had. Milly and I had read the cards which dangled from the trunk handles and gun case. The address was Mr. Dudley R. Rithin, Paris, via Dover. "'I am old.' agitated, on the eve of a decision on which much depends. Pray, relieve my suspense. Is my son to leave Bartram today in sorrow, or to remain in joy? Pray, answer quickly. I stammered I know not what. I was incoherent, wild, perhaps, but somehow I expressed my meaning, my unalterable decision. I thought his lips grew wider and his eyes shone brighter as I spoke. When I had quite made an end, he heaved a great sigh, and turning his eyes slowly to the right and the left, like a man in a helpless distraction, he whispered, God's will be done. I thought he was upon the point of fainting. A clay tint darkened the white of his face, and, seeming to forget my presence, he sat down. Looking with a despairing scowl on his ashy old hand, as it lay upon the table. I stood gazing at him, feeling almost as if I had murdered the old man. He still gazing askance with an imbecile scowl upon his hand. "'Shall I go, sir?' I at length found courage to whisper. "'Go,' he said, looking up suddenly, and it seemed to me as if a stream of cold sheet-lightning had crossed and enveloped me for a moment. "'Go, oh, uh—' "'Yes, yes, Maud, go. I must see poor Dudley before his departure,' he added, as it were, in soliloquy. Trembling lest he should revoke his permission to depart, I glided quickly and noiselessly from the room. Old Wyatt was prowling outside with a cloth in her hand, pretending to dust the carved door-case. She frowned a stare of inquiry over her shrunken arm on me as I passed. "'Milly,' who had been on the watch, ran and met me. We heard my uncle's voice as I shut the door, calling Dudley. 
He had been waiting, probably, in the adjoining room. I hurried into my chamber with Milly at my side, and there my agitation found relief in tears, as that of girlhood naturally does. A little while after we saw from the window, Dudley, looking, I thought, very pale, get into a vehicle, on the top of which his luggage lay, and drive away from Bartram. I began to take comfort. His departure was an inexpressible relief. His final departure, a distant journey. We had tea in Milly's room that night. Firelight and candles are inspiring. In that red glow I always felt and feel more safe as well as more comfortable than in the daylight. Quite irrationally, for we know that night is the appointed day of such as love the darkness better than light, and evil walks thereby. But so it is. Perhaps the very consciousness of external danger enhances the enjoyment of the well-lighted interior, just as the storm does that roars and hurtles over the roof. While Milly and I were talking very cosily, a knock came to at the room door, and without waiting for an invitation to enter, old Wyatt came in, and glowering at us with her brown claw upon the door-handle, she said to Milly, "'Ye must leave your fun in, Miss Milly, and take your turn in your father's room.' "'Is he ill?' I asked. She answered, addressing not me, but Milly. "'A rot, two hours in a fit, arter Master Dudley went. "'Twill be the death of him, I'm thinking, poor fella. "'I were sorry myself when I saw Master Dudley a-going off in a moist to-day, poor fella. "'There's trouble enough in the family without of that, "'but twon't be a family long, I'm thinking. "'Not but trouble, not but trouble, since the late changes came.' Judging by the sour glance she threw on me as she said this, I concluded that I represented those late changes to which all the sorrows of the house were referred. I felt unhappy under the ill-will even of this odious old woman, being one of those unhappily constructed mortals who cannot be indifferent when they reasonably ought, and always yearn after kindness, even that of the worthless. "'I must go!' "'I wish you'd come with me, Maud. I'm so afraid all alone,' said Milly, imploringly. "'Certainly, Milly,' I answered, not liking it, you may be sure. "'You shan't sit there alone.' So together we went, old Wyatt cautioning us for our lives to make no noise. We passed through the old man's sitting-room, where that day had occurred his brief but momentous interview with me, and his parting with his only son, and entered the bedroom at the farther end. A low fire burned in the grate. The room was in a sort of twilight. A dim lamp near the foot of the bed at the farther side was the only light burning there. Old Wyatt whispered an injunction not to speak above our breaths, nor to leave the fireside unless the sick man called or showed signs of weariness. These were the directions of the doctor who had been there. So Milly and I sat ourselves down near the hearth, and old Wyatt left us to our resources. We could hear the patient breathe, but he was quite still. In whispers we talked, but our conversation flagged. I was, after my wont, upbraiding myself for the suffering I had inflicted. After about half an hour's desultory whispering, and intervals growing longer and longer of silence, it was plain that Milly was falling asleep. She strove against it, and I tried hard to keep her talking, but it would not do. Sleep overcame her, and I was the only person in that ghastly room in a state of perfect consciousness. 
There were associations connected with my last vigil there, to make my situation very nervous and disagreeable. Had I not had so much to occupy my mind, of a distinctly practical kind, Dudley's audacious suit, my uncle's unquestionable tolerance of it, and my own conduct throughout that most disagreeable period of my existence, I should have felt my present situation a great deal more. As it was, I thought of my real troubles, and something of Cousin Knollys, and, I confess, a good deal of Lord Ilbury. When I looked towards the door, I thought I saw a human face, about the most terrible my fancy could have called up, looking fixedly into the room. It was only a three-quarter, and not the whole figure. The door hid that in a great measure, and I fancied I saw, too, a portion of the fingers. The face gazed toward the bed, and in the imperfect light looked like a livid mask with chalky eyes. I had so often been startled by similar apparitions formed by accidental lights and shadows, disguising homely objects, that I stooped forward, expecting, though tremulously, to see this tremendous one, in like manner dissolve itself into its harmless elements. And now, to my unspeakable terror, I became perfectly certain that I saw the countenance of Madame de la Rougere. With a cry I started back and shook Milly furiously from her trance. "'Look! Look!' I cried, but the apparition or illusion was gone. I clung so fast to Milly's arm, cowering behind her, that she could not rise. "'Milly! Milly! Milly! Milly!' I went on crying, like one struck with idiocy and unable to say anything else. In a panic, Milly, who had seen nothing and could conjecture nothing of the cause of my terror, jumped up and clinging to one another, we huddled together into the corner of the room, I still crying wildly, Milly! 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 And nothing else. "'What is it? What is it? What do you see?' cried Milly, clinging to me as I did to her. "'It will come again! It will come! Oh, heaven!' "'What? What is it, Maud? "'The face! The face!' I cried. "'Oh, Milly! Milly! Milly!' We heard a step softly approaching the open door, and, in a horrible sauve-qui-peau, we rushed and stumbled together toward the light by Uncle Silas's bed. But old Wyatt's voice and figure reassured us. "'Milly,' I said, so soon as, pale and very faint, I reached my apartment. "'No power on earth shall ever tempt me to enter that room again after dark.' "'Why, Maud, dear, what in heaven's name did you see?' said Milly, scarcely less terrified. "'Oh, I can't, I can't, I can't, Milly. Never ask me. Is it haunted? Is the room haunted horribly?' "'Was it Chark?' whispered Milly, looking over her shoulder all aghast. "'No, no, don't ask me. A fiend in a worse shape.' I was relieved at last by a long fit of weeping. And all night good Mary Quint sat by me, and Milly slept by my side. Starting and screaming— and drugged with salvoletily, I got through that night of supernatural terror, and saw the blessed light of heaven again. Dr. Jokes, when he came to see my uncle in the morning, visited me also. He pronounced me very hysterical, made minute inquiries respecting my hours and diet, asked what I had had for dinner yesterday. There was something a little comforting in his cool and confident poo-pooing of the ghost theory. The result was a regimen which excluded tea and imposed chocolate and porter, 
earlier hours, and I forget all beside. And he undertook to promise that, if I would but observe his directions, I should never see a ghost again. End of chapter 49